Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for being our God, and we thank you for allowing us to come and worship you this day. It's been a tough year, but we've made it to the last Sunday of 2020, Lord Father. Lord Father, as difficult as this past year may have been, help us to stay true to you as you always remain faithful to us. Be with us in this time of worship, O Lord. May you be well pleased by it. Uh, may uh, you use me, O Lord, to speak <clears throat> your truth and your words to your people, Lord Father. May the words flowing from me be yours and not my own, Lord. Be with us. Guide us always, Lord. We thank you. In your son's Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, have you ever had a day start off so amazing, start off really good, but it was ruined by one singular event that happened that night? For example, let's say you wake up one morning and you're feeling great. Everything's going so well for you. You get on in your car and you're on your way to work or to school and every light is green. There's no traffic. Nobody honks at you. And one thing I learned in, in New York, they honk at you for everything, right? Nobody honks at you. The traffic, you get to work, you get to school, and maybe you get to school and on that day, the teacher gives you a pop quiz but you're prepared for it. You know every question on that test and you, you get everything right. Or you go to work and for some reason your boss compliments you in front of your peers on a job well done. You're feeling high, you're feeling so great. And on that day, your friend even buys you lunch. So during lunch, you have good company and you have a free meal. But that night you go home and just before bed, you get into a huge argument, huge fight with your parents or your sibling or your spouse, and the day ends. On this particular day, when you go to bed, do you think you'll be happy and say, wow, that was a great day? Or you think, man, this day sucked. You'll be stressed and, and sulky because of what happened at the end, right? All the things that happened in the beginning just kind of fades away up to what happened at the end. That is the lasting impression of that day. A good ending, therefore, is as important, if not more important, than what happens in the beginning. Endings are the stuff of what legends are made of. Think of a particular TV show, one that came into this world by storm. It came with a lot of fanfare, it came with a lot of buzz, a lot of gossip, a lot of, of talk. And if you were old enough to watch the show and you watched season one of the show, you would have been blown away and amazed by all the things that happened in it. The show I'm referring to came out all the way in 2011. And it's called Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. You guys might have heard this show before and you probably might have watched the show. For our younger viewers, please don't go looking for it. It's not for you. It's for our older folk here. But if you watched season one and saw how season one ended, you were like, wow, this is an amazing show. It has great storytelling. It has a lot of things going on. And it got better in season two and season three, season four. And, and then last year, 2019 happened. Season eight happened. And if you watched it all the way through the end and you grudged through season eight, you know that the show left a lot to be desired. It just didn't feel right, felt rushed, felt like it was off. And because of that, 
You probably haven't heard anyone mention Game of Thrones until I just did right now in this sermon, right? And that says a lot in a day and age where fantasy and superheroes and the lasting power of these kinds of shows like Harry Potter, Star Wars, Star Trek, the Marvel Universe. It says a lot if something that's built up so mightily just kind of disappears from our collective consciousness. The show was so bad at the end that we don't even remember. It's not even a part of our popular culture anymore. Even though the beginning was great, because the ending was so bad, we don't talk about it. We don't think about it. On the flip side, was there something that started off bad, but ended so well that it left a good impression on you? You know, 2020, this past year, was a horrible year. And I shared as much on my previous sermon a month ago. But as someone from Los Angeles, California, and being a sports fan of Los Angeles, California, 2020 was kind of a great year for sports fans, right? Because both the Dodgers and the Lakers won the championship in their respective sports. I enjoyed it immensely, sometimes at the expense of you guys. But I also shared with people who had asked me that I enjoyed it this year more so because I got to enjoy it with my son, Ryan. He's seven, and he would stay up late at night trying to watch the Dodgers games and the Lakers games with me. But being so young, he didn't understand some things. He didn't understand the concept of a seven-game series and having to win four games out of seven. So whenever we would lose a game, he's like, oh, we lost, it's over, we lost. Right? Or if the beginning of the game, we're losing by a few points, oh, we're going to lose this game, oh. And he would get so sad. Right? And I, I would have to remind him, no, there's still seven innings left in this game. There's still three quarters left. There's still a few more games to be played in this series. It's going to be okay. Right? Yankees great Yogi Berra once said, it, it ain't over till it's over. It ain't over till it's over. The game's not done until the final out, the final buzzer, or the final whistle. The Lakers and Dodgers lost games along the way, but they had the higher score in the end, and that's why they were the champs. The ending is what matters. And I say this to you as a reminder that the ending of your life matters as well. It doesn't matter so much the beginning or what happens in the middle, but the ending. The ending, that is, did you end your time here on earth with Christ? Did you end this time on earth with Christ? In our passage for today, we hear a parable that Jesus gives describing the kingdom of heaven, what the kingdom of heaven is like, and sandwiching this parable in Matthew 19 and 30, and the last verse that we read today, chapter 20, verse 16, Jesus speaks about the first and the last. So today, we're going to talk about what the kingdom of heaven is like according to this particular parable. It will show us that God is sovereign, that God is just, and God is gracious. It also tells us what we must do as well. The first thing that this passage tells us about the kingdom of heaven is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. In the kingdom of, God, in the kingdom of heaven, God has supreme authority. He is, in essence, the master of his domain, the master of the house. Right? You might have heard this phrase before. As long as you live under my roof, you will follow my rules. Right? It's said by many parents to their children, if they don't listen or obey the rules set out by said parents. You know, my son, my younger son, Brandon, uh, you know, he is into like dinosaurs and like 
boy stuff, but he also has this, fa- he loves Little Mermaid. So this past week, we had him play, watch Little Mermaid again, and that line is in that movie. It's kind of strong, but the dad, Ariel's dad says, as long as you live in my ocean, you'll follow my rules. And I was thinking, man, the, the ocean's kind of big for a fish. Like, there's nowhere to go. Even in these movies, kids' movies, we see this, and usually this phrase is uttered when things are bad in the house and ends with, and if you don't like it, you can leave. Hopefully our God won't speak that harshly to us, but he does have rules for those who want to be a part of his kingdom, and we have to abide by it to enter and even be a part of it, and even if it might not match our rules or the way that we've done things. For example, do you remember the first time you ever went to a non-Asian friend's house? The first time you ever went to a non-Asian friend's house. There's a big difference with an Asian home and a non-Asian home right when you go through the door. You guys know what it is? It's what you do with your shoes, right? It's what you do with your shoes. Asians, we usually take our shoes off when we enter somebody's house. Non-Asians, for the most part, leave their shoes on. So when I first went to a non-Asian friend's house for a birthday party in elementary school, and I was about to take my shoes off, the mom came and said, no, no, we don't do that. You could just leave your shoes on. And if you remember, if you had that experience, that's just a, what? You guys leave the shoes. It was a weird feeling, right? Because we're so accustomed to doing something one way, always taking the shoes off. It felt, I felt really off, but because I didn't want to stand out and douse the rule of the house, I went along with it. I took my shoes off, or sorry, kept my shoes on, even if not what I was used to. Whatever home or establishment that you go to, the owner is sovereign. They get to have the final say on how things are done there. And in the kingdom of heaven, God is sovereign, so he gets the say on how things are done. And in this parable, the master of the house is God. And he goes out to hire laborers in his vineyard. In the early morning, he goes out and hires workers, and he agrees to pay them a denarius a day, which is considered a full day's wage during that time. But this master also continues to go out, seemingly, seemingly hour after hour, to hire more and more people. But there's a difference with the first people he hired and the people he hired afterwards. The first group, there's an agreement about pay. If you look at verse 2, it says, After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day. So it's a contract. Both parties, the masters and the workers, know what they're getting themselves into. Know that this is going to be the pay at the end. But the groups that come afterwards, it says something different. For example, in verse 4, it says, and this is the master speaking to the workers, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give to you. So there's no discussion of pay. Nothing set from the get-go. No price kind of set at the beginning. You just go and work, and whatever is right, I will give to you at the end. Now, this may seem unusual, that one group seemingly is getting treated differently than another group, but being sovereign overall, God has this right. M. Eugene Boring, a professor of New Testament at Bright Divinity School at Texas Christian University, says, The parable invites reflection on the sovereignty of the good God, 
the one with who there can be no bargaining because he is the creator and the sovereign. God is allowed to make the rules as God sees fit. This does not make it unfair. This, not make, this does not make it wrong because God is creator over all things. He's sovereign over all things. So it closes the door for us to argue against him for doing things the way that God sees as right. But even if God is sovereign, and even if God sets the rules, and some people may not agree with it at times, our passage also shows us that God is still just, that our God is fair. As you continue reading the passage, it tells us, that the time for paying the workers eventually comes up. And the master tells the foreman to start paying the people from the people that are hired later in the day first. In verses 9 through 10, it tells us that the people who are hired last were all paid a denarius. And because of that, the people that were hired first, seeing this, thought, probably thought, wow, they got a denarius. I mean, they promised us a denarius, but we're probably going to get more because those people got, only paid, got paid a denarius too. So maybe we'll get like five denarius. But when it came for them to collect their pay, we find out what? They get paid the same one denarius. And so they complained and they argued. They grumbled against the master of the house. And verse 12 records what they say, the workers that say to the master. And it says, the last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. They were arguing we worked more, we worked longer, we worked harder, we deserve more. And it wasn't just about the amount of pay, what's the argument? You have made them equal to us. You're treating us the same. It's not fair. We deserve more, we deserve better. And I'm sure all of us who have had part-time jobs or had like hourly pay, we could kind of understand this sentiment, right? If you, get, if you work 10 hours a day for $10 an hour, you expect at the end of the day to be paid $100. If a coworker comes in at closing and works one hour, you expect that person to be paid $10. Right? In our mind, that's what's fair. We can understand this concept. But the thing is, as we saw in our earlier point about God being sovereign, the master of the house agreed to workers uh, the first hired people a wage with them. They agreed for a denarius. So what they got paid was fair. It's a just wage. It doesn't really matter what the master gives to those who come afterwards. He didn't cheat the first workers out of anything. He gave them as promise. How others are treated doesn't really matter. What is set upon and agreed upon between the workers and the master is what matters. To them, this may seem unfair. To us, when we read it, it might seem unfair. And so there's complaining. But the master goes on to say in verses 13 to 15, I, I'm paraphrasing now, I did you no wrong. We agreed to a denarius. I can do what I want with my money. I can be generous to others as I see fit. The master even tries to appease the workers. He doesn't just call them, hey, you. He calls them friend friend. I'm not cheating you. I'm not doing any wrong. Am I not allowed to do with my money what I want to do? Douglas R.A. Hare, another New Testament professor, says, the vineyard owner claims the right to pay his workers not on the basis of their merits, 
but on the basis of his own compassion. Why should such generosity be condemned as injustice? Herod is arguing that compassion and grace are not injustices. It's a very kind gesture. Generous, generosity of a person is not something that we should be putting down. If God treats all his children equally, who are we to complain that he shouldn't? Right? Those of you in here who have kids or those at home who have children, have your kids ever complained to you like this? Mom and dad, how dare you love me and my siblings equally? I have loved you four more years than my younger brother and sister because I'm four years older than them. You have to love me more. I've been here longer than them. And if you hear that kind of argument, you're like, what? It doesn't make sense, right? If anyone ever complained like that, you would think that child is spoiled or, or bratty. Some theologians argue here that Matthew is, here, is writing to the Jewish Christians about their sentiments toward the Gentile Christians. Jewish Christians are considered the laborers from the beginning, who's been there a long time, who's suffered through a lot more. And they're questioning, why do the Gentile Christians get the same reward? They're, getting the, the, they're questioning the fairness of this. And Matthew is trying to teach the Jewish, his Jewish readers that all are equal in God's kingdom all are equal in God's kingdom. And you, Christian, may have felt this too. I worked more. I did more for God. Why is someone who serves less getting the same as I am? Why are they being treated equally as me? But once again, it brings us back to the first point, that in God's kingdom, God is sovereign. God has authority to set it up and administer justice in his way. And even in his parameters, he is just in that he didn't cheat anyone out. He didn't, this master also didn't cheat the first workers of anything. He gave them exactly what he said he would give them, what he promised he would give them. Warren Wiersbe says, of course they complained, but they had no argument because they had agreed to work for a penny. Wiersbe is saying that because they agreed to the terms a denarius, or he says a penny, that they cannot make an argument because the payment is a just Payment, it is exactly what was agreed upon. I promise you this, and I gave you this. When we serve the Lord, we also know what we're getting ourselves into. The rules, the system doesn't change along the way. God will give us what is promised to us if we finish well in this life. We should not get sidetracked by seeing the fortunes of others seeing what other believers receive and compare ourselves to them, but be thankful that God is one who fulfills his promises to us and often gives us even more than we ask or more than we deserve. In our passage, verse 15, it says that the master says this, do you begrudge my generosity? Do you begrudge my generosity? And in the Greek, the phrase, do you begrudge, it literally means, is your eye evil? Is your eye evil? The workers were not thankful for what they received because they were blinded by their own desires. They saw what other people were getting and they called up this, this hatred and this, this, this burning negative feeling inside of them. Do not complain as the workers who worked from the beginning did. Do not compare, do not be blinded, but be thankful that God's graces have been poured out onto you. 
And that's the third thing that this parable teaches us about the kingdom of heaven, that the master, our God, is gracious. You know, God could have paid more to the first hired, or the master could have. He could have given less to those hired later, but he gave as promised, and in the end, he gave equally to all who worked. And this is God's grace. Even when we don't deserve it, God pours out his love for us. This parable is ultimately speaking about salvation, and the salvation that God gives to his children is the same no matter when you come to faith, whether you're born into church, going, born to church-going parents, and who takes you to church all your life, or maybe you start believing in God, <clears throat> excuse me, or when you go to college, or maybe you start following Jesus in your, later in your adulthood, or even if you accept Jesus and have a genuine conversion the night before you pass, whenever your road to belief and your relationship with the Savior begins, from that moment all on, we all get the same grace and reward for entering into God's kingdom. We get to live life eternal with God in His place. And this grace is for everyone and anyone who accepts Jesus as their Savior. When you accept Christ into your hearts, he will dwell in you, and you will forever be marked a child of God. It doesn't matter when that takes place. There are no prerequisites to receive God's grace and to enter his kingdom, whether it be how many hours of service you did for God, or how many Sundays you came to worship him, or how many mission trips you went on. The only thing is, do you believe in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross? Do you have faith? And this is the good news, that we are not saved by works, but we are saved by grace. Because if you're saved by works, then no one can attain salvation. Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-9, through For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Amen. Grace of God, saved by faith, not by your work, gift of God, meaning God can bestow his gift to any person, the gift of salvation to anyone that he desires. God loves you so much, Christian, and those investigating Christianity today and possibly trying to find out more about your faith. God loves you so much to stir and move your hearts and is ready to pour out his grace upon you. God loves you so much that God sent his son to die and resurrect for you so that you may receive this salvation. Who among us deserves the Son of Man, Son of God, to die for us? None of us do. We deserve death for our own sin, but God loved you so much that he sent his Son in our place. Christian, as someone that will ultimately receive this eternal life as you persevere to the end, are you going to be the one to complain about God's grace being given to others? Douglas R.A. Hare once again says, The sacrifice of the apostles and other followers of Jesus will be honored by God, but the reward will so far outstrip the sacrifice that it must be seen as sheer grace. Although some may feel that their long and costly service qualifies them for a higher rate of pay in the kingdom, all must humbly acknowledge that in fact they are like 11th hour workers. None deserve the glorious future that God has prepared for them. Professor Harris saying, none of us deserves God's grace, but God gives it to us 
And for that, we humbly accept and we are to be thankful. In high school, <clears throat> I was in this uh, thing called Model United Nations. You guys know what Model United Nations is? It's basically uh, like a debate team type of thing, but you uh, pretend to be a, a representative country in the United Nations and you go to conferences and you discuss world events or things that the United Nations would kind of talk about. And through this conference, uh, I had my first chance to come to New York all the way back in 1999. But these debates that we had um, would be against other schools and they would usually fall on Saturdays. Right? They usually be on Saturdays, but sometimes we would have longer conferences that would last from Friday to Sunday. It would take place over the weekend. And because of this, because um, it went all the way up to Sunday, many students would tell the teacher, you know, these longer conferences, well, we can't go uh, because I need to go to church on Sunday. And my, myself and my friends, we would choose church over these conferences. We didn't want to miss out on Sunday worship. And every time a student gave this excuse to the teacher, we can't go because of church, he would get furious. He hated it. He was not a believer. He didn't understand the importance of worship. He didn't understand the faith. He didn't believe in, in, in Christ. And he was very much turned off of Christianity. So he said, oh, I need to go to church. Like, he would get so angry and really, really put us down. In my sophomore year, <clears throat> high school, this teacher developed cancer. And uh, it rapidly rapidly spread in his body, so he had to step down. And he obviously couldn't teach anymore. He stepped down, and he started getting treatment. But about a year later, it was announced that te this teacher is coming back to school to speak at our high school Christian club. Right? He's going to come back and speak at a high school where my friends and I heard this, like, what? He's going to come and talk at the Christian club? Is he looking for one more time to put us all down? Like, why is he coming to speak at Christian Club? But we're all curious, right? So on the day that this event took place, we, a lot of us went to this room, and it was packed, packed with people just to hear what this person might say, what this teacher might say. And he came, and he, he shared his story, and he shared how he went through chemotherapy, and he lost his strength, he lost his hair, and he hated it. He was very bitter about what was happening in his life. But he had a friend, a pastor friend, who would visit him every day. And every day this pastor friend would come and share about Jesus and how God loves him very much. And it made my teacher hate God even more. If he loves me so much, why am I suffering this way? Why am I dying from this cancer if God is so good, if God is so amazing? It's just like my kids. My students who go to church. He, he would always oppose him, but the friend would always come and come and visit him. As he got more and more treatment, he told us that he eventually lost his sense of taste. And he couldn't taste anything, so when the doctors or whoever would bring him food, he couldn't taste it, so he wouldn't eat it. One day, his friend visited him again, and my teacher shared with him, you know what, I, I'm losing my strength, I lost my hair, I can't even taste anything anymore. And my teacher shared that that friend 
stayed that day with him, talking to him. And as he was leaving, the friend, the pastor friend turned around and said, hey, you know what? I recently went to KFC, and they have a new menu item called the chicken pot pie. It was delicious. And he left. My teacher sat there like, is this guy mocking me? This man of God that's supposed to love me, I tell him I can't taste anything, and he comes to me and says he ate at KFC and that chicken pot pie is delicious? Ah, oh, he, he got even, even more angry. But after that round of treatment is over, his, his, uh, his uh, daughter came to pick him up. And on the drive home, he complained about his friend. He complained about everything in life. But he saw a KFC up the road. And he told his daughter, hey, just stop and get me a chicken pot pie. And the teacher said, when he took the first bite of the chicken pot pie, the flavors just came alive in his mouth. For some reason, he couldn't taste anything before. But on that day, when he ate that chicken pot pie, he could taste the chicken, he could taste the vegetables, he could taste the, I don't even know what a chicken pot pie is, but the breading. I, <laughs> he could taste everything. And he said, it was so delicious. And he started weeping. And after that, when his pastor friend continued to come visit him, he started to listen and pay attention a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And he said he came to Christian Club today to apologize to us. He didn't understand God. He didn't understand why we chose our faith over school and chose to not go to those conferences for church worship. But he knew that he realized he was in the wrong came to apologize to us. And he shared from this very passage that I read that, was, that we were going over today, that he's thankful that our God is so good and gracious that even a person like he, who looked down on Christians all his life, that God will be so gracious to allow him to enter the vineyard and still receive the love and grace and eternal life. A few months later, that teacher passed away. The church that hosted his funeral, it was packed with all of his former students like myself and my friends, just praying and singing hymns and worshiping God. We who came to God early in life, when we hear a story like this, can we be so upset at the grace of God, at the goodness of God, that maybe we did this all our life and we went through hardships. This guy only believed for like three months. And we get the same reward? Doesn't that just make our God even better? More gracious, more good, more loving? I don't think we have anything to complain about because we too at one point of our life was in darkness and God touched us and brought us into the light. None of us deserved it. But those who came early, you should be even more thankful that you got to enjoy God's love and joy of being with God early on. Not complaining that you have to bear the heat of the day. God's grace should make us, not make us jealous, but make us thankful. So what now? We hear this parable and it's telling us that the kingdom of heaven is like this master and these workers in the vineyard. We learn that the kingdom of heaven 
<clears throat> shows us that God is sovereign, that God is just, that God is, is gracious. What do we do with that then? Well, like I said, this passage, there's a verse in the beginning and at the end that talks about something very similar, the first and the last. Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, we didn't read this together, but it's the verse preceding chapter 1 says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And our final verse today, Matthew 20, 16 says, so the last will be first and the first last. What then does this first and last have anything to do with the kingdom of God? Why then is the sermon titled, it's not how you begin, but how you finish? It's because I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to remain in the field, to finish strong. I don't want you to be like the workers who began at the beginning, who complained and compared and called things unfair when the master was gracious. I don't want you to complain, why me, why me? And compare, why he, why she? And cry foul, why them also? As Pastor John shared on Christmas Eve, stop playing the victim. In the kingdom of God, you are not a victim. You're not getting the short end of the stick. You're getting the best of God. You have entered the kingdom. What is there to complain about? What is there to compare about? What does it matter if you go to church as a child or a youth, as an adult, to fall away at the end? We have to finish strong. We know some of Jesus' disciples fell away. In John chapter 6, there's a story where Jesus speaks about the eating the flesh of the Son of Man and drinking his blood. And some people heard this and took it very literally and like, oh, how do we eat? And, and it's not for me. And these disciples fell away. They were first, but now they're last. And perhaps one of the great examples of the first being last is one of the original 12 disciples, Judas who spent three years with Jesus, just like Peter, James, John, Andrew, and all the other disciples that you know of. And even though he was chosen, one of the 12, one of the original, he fell away. Better not to have been born is what it says of Judas. Many who begin early may lose their reward or not have even developed a true, genuine faith in Christ and salvation. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Like the teacher of mine that I shared about. Continue to encourage each other to stay true to the faith. Continue to encourage and love each other during these difficult times about God's sovereignty and justice and grace that's not just saved up for you in heaven, but it's there for you in your lives right now as well. Encourage fellow believers daily to remember God, to lean on God, and know and trust in God's goodness. And then go out and invite other workers to the field. We all have friends and family members who have not come to get realize the grace of God just yet. Reach out to them. Share with them. Show them the love of Jesus. It's not too late. Those who of us who worry and struggle about the salvation of an unbelieving friend or a family member, remember God's grace can come to them later in life. But do your part in continuing to display the grace in a real impactful way so that their spiritual eyes and hearts will be opened. Even if they come to the party late, they can still enjoy it. And for all of us as well, I encourage 
you. And I pray for you that during these difficult times, and even with the uncertainty of what the new year may bring, to finish strong. James Montgomery Boy says, it's not necessary either to start early and finish last, or start last and finish first. In fact, neither is best. The truly desirable thing is to start early and work with all the power at our disposal, not for reward, but out of love for our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Boys is saying, continue on running the race, not for what God may give you in the end, but because you love him. And when you finish, you'll receive the best from God. The kingdom of heaven is like a vineyard. The master of this vineyard is God, who is sovereign and has all authority to set rules and parameters as he so desires. But even when in his rules, God is just. He treats all those who come to him, work for him as equals and calls them friends. And God is gracious. Our works do not merit the grace, the prize that God has in store for us. But God gives this to us all equally because God is gracious. Remember these things and do not grumble against the Lord. When in your eyes something may not seem fair, do not get blinded and sidetracked and turned off course, but be strong and finish strong. Be lasting and remain in the Lord. Encourage each other during these difficult seasons, the grace of God, the goodness of the Lord, and stay on course. And know that it's not too late to bring more workers to the field. They may not have joined yet, but there's always time. Continue to reach out to your loved ones who have not come to know the goodness of God yet and trust in God's graces. It doesn't matter how you begin, but how you finish. It doesn't matter when you start believing and following the Lord. It matters that you finish this life believing and following the Lord. The ending is more important than the beginning. The ending is what can make the last come first. Let's pray together. Holy Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for being our God. And above all, we thank you for being a gracious God, Lord Father, who calls sinners like us your child. Lord Father, as people who have experienced your grace, <clears throat> help us to stay true to you, knowing that you will be good yesterday, today, and forevermore, Lord Father. Help us to use the power that you give us to go and witness to our fellow brothers, fellow uh, friends who may not know your goodness yet, Lord Father. And help us encourage each other to finish strong in you, to not waver, not to turn away, but stay true to who you are, because you will always stay true to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.